Welcome to the Resist Bob podcast, hosted by me, Melanie Dion. Join me this week and every week as I chat with the advocates and activists in your neighborhood at the intersection where policy meets people. Now, let's start the show. Welcome to the Resist by Podcast. I'm your host, Melanie Dion. This is our second episode of the second season. So glad that you're here and joining us again. I hope that you, like me, took part in the day without us. And it fired you up to get down and build community with the organizers in your neighborhood. I know that I'm galvanized by the experience. I was furiously taking notes and already making connections with the people that I know, I mean, New Orleans is a big organizing space because we have plenty of work to do. So, you know, I'm not big at small talk with leading into the podcast. So I would like to get right into our guests. I am delighted and excited to introduce you to the organizers from my neighboring state of Texas. We have Jothis James and Ellis Howard. They are with the Texas A&M chapter of the Students for a Democratic Society, Welcome. Hey. Hey. I like to jump right in. Before we talk about the work, I like to talk about the folks behind the work. So, Ellis, you popped up. So would you like to tell us about you first, who you are, what you do, and what brought you to this work? Cool. Yeah, I'm Ellis. I use they, them pronouns. Mainly, like, outside of organizing, I do nude modeling. That's, like, the thing that I do in my spare time that I like to do to fulfill myself. It's just really rewarding connecting with people on like that intimate of a level. And I got into the work after the pandemic of 2020. You know, we're still in the pandemic, but kind of like the social height of it. I was transitioning medically and socially during that time just started. And, you know, I was realizing a lot of things about myself and the world we lived in. And I wanted to pop out in whatever way I could. So I looked on the A&M and said, well, how can help out. Like, so I didn't really see any orgs that I could join that would kind of help out AM in the way that I wanted to see. So me and a few other uh, AM students started the AM chapter of SDS and we started work on trying to get the Sullivan Ross statue removed, which there's like a whole history behind that. There was years of protest before we came around and we just started to continue the work because we saw that. I think if we didn't do it, it probably would have been kind of left where it was. And yeah, so that's me and where I got into organizing. Thanks so much, Alice. And we also have Jothis James. Hi, I'm Jothis, and I'm a fifth year in the Department of Philosophy at Texas A&M University. I study critical race theory, broadly speaking. I'm also interested in topics of anti-colonialism. Specifically, I'm focusing in on Black aesthetics, concepts of beauty coming out of like the Black Africana tradition, and aesthetics more broadly in the global South. And in terms of what got me into social justice issues, I think it was coming to a racial awareness when I was an undergraduate at Lake Forest College, which is about 30 miles north of Chicago. Small liberal arts school, first time living outside of an immigrant neighborhood. I was always surrounded by other immigrants or people of color, so never really felt racialized for a good while while I was in the United States. And it really dawned on me when I went to college. And I decided from there to get involved with activism and social issues on campus, but it didn't really broaden on 
until I came to graduate school. Got involved with activism through primarily through Ellis here, and I appreciate that opportunity. I'm also involved with uh, Malayalis for Social Justice, which is an organization that took off after the George Floyd murders in response to how my specific community can respond to the racial tensions here in the United States and being a diaspora that is faced with the predicament of living in a country that has such kind of racial antagonism and continues to do so, uh, especially against minority groups. So to just plug the organization, you can find us at Malayalis, M-A-L-A-Y-A-L-E-E-S for socialjustice.org or at msj.org. And you should be able to, if you type in my name and Malayalis for Social Justice, you should be able to find our organization and the work that we're doing. So that's just a quick plug in for them. In general, I would say that I'm quite new to organizing and I'm learning more about it as I'm going through it. It is a learning curve. I don't think there's a final product or final destination to this. You're always learning by with community members based on what needs need to be met and what you can be catering to. And independent of my social justice activities, I think one of the things that I really enjoy is going out dancing, socializing, partying. That is my primary modus operandi. No, I love that. I love, we contain multitudes. And so it's not just the work and then we sleep and then we eat enough to survive. And then there's so much that goes into that being fully human, our joy, our triumph. It, all of those things factor into how we sustain ourselves to continue when we deal with a world that is often very terrible. <laughs> when we talk about what it's like, particularly on a college campus, when you are among people who should be enlightened, who should, we're talking about educated people. We're not talking about people who, you know, haven't been off their block. We're talking about people who have been exposed to other cultures or are seeking to be exposed to other cultures. When you have to still deal with a certain level of closed-mindedness, particularly if you're not white, straight, cis, and of means, what does that, how did that inform the work that you do? How did that, inf- how does that inform how you approach being part of this organization on your campus? And also let's, and we can specifically talk about the Sullivan Ross, the Sullivan Ross statue, because that is one of the things that you are seeking to have removed. I don't want that to be lost in the discussion that we have. When we talk, speak specifically about a university who I believe your president talked about moving into the new golden age, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the but this fight is about holding on to the tradition of a white supremacist. How does who you are inform how you approach this specific aspect of the work? I think like it's very interesting to note that most institutions in the U.S. are based in white supremacy. You know, an A and M is no different. But getting involved with this work, you learn a lot. Of A and M is like a University centered around traditions. And they all started before they were letting in black people, before they were letting in women, when they were in military college. And, you know, those kind of lingering hints of white supremacy have continued on to this day. You know, it's it's not just the Sullivan Ross statue. It's like the, our mascot was stolen from black campus workers, uh, Revelee, and the 12th man who's like a symbol of AM. The coach that called him down to the stands was a KKK member. 
Yeah. It's like baked in and kind of this myth of like the generational white Aggie is that you're supposed to be proud to be an Aggie. You're supposed to be this kind of symbol of exceptionalism, but like, what has that meant to who in the past and how do you work with that? And A&M is not like a campus is not kind of addressing that. I don't know if I got lost in the question, but working with people, I talk to people nearly like every day who don't even question that they put pennies at the feet. It's a, it's a tradition to put pennies at the feet of Sullivan Ross and like pray for good grades. You know, they don't even question that he was a Confederate general. You know, they don't even question the atrocities that he did um, colonizing the U.S. as a part of the Texas Rangers. So like when I talk to them, it's like 20 minutes of going through this elaborate history with them. And it's almost like a wall. Like you can kind of see all the answers that they say, like every single one of them are nearly the same, like, oh, well, you know, that was in the past or, you know, he changed after the Civil War, which he didn't, you know, segregationists. But, you know, it's just almost like a propaganda that A&M kind of proposes into the future and a lot of other institutions do. It's very, very interesting. Uh, Jothis, if you want to talk a bit about your experience working with this as well. So how does who I am inform my aspect of the work? I think it's largely because I... Over time, I became positioned into a place of precarity, of uncertainty that ultimately had informed the kind of activism I do because I was like, there's no other way to respond to this, especially through the channels that are already in place. I guess I'll start with a story about how I came to this grad program. One of the things is they offered me a healthy amount of money and I was encouraged by my advisors to come to a program that would financially support me. And ideally, that's what you need. However, throughout the years, and especially with how much grad students get paid in the my department, it was not sustaining me. And I noticed that for a lot of my peers as well. And it's largely the bureaucracy of this university. It's just massive massive and trying to get anything done trying to get paperwork getting reimbursements can put a lot of hurdles stress tension on someone trying to navigate these spaces and i think that's largely how i got involved with activism because i thought of it as a mode of direct action that could respond to these immediate and urgent needs that many of the students were facing and unfortunately one thing i noticed especially about the student population here is there's this tendency towards complacent conformity and Many of them are fine with the way things are, or even if they are faced with predicaments, just find some alternative route. And I think largely this is informed by students having financial support from family or being well off, that they can do these kinds of things. But I couldn't afford that. And I wasn't going to be complacent, especially when we were getting screwed over in so many different ways. So activism is definitely, and direct action is definitely one of those ways where I was like, this is how we respond to issues that are facing students on campus. And another element that really informs a kind of complacency is that many of the students have been indoctrinated through this Aggie immersion camp or fish camp, whatever it's called. And so they become part of this larger campus culture, which is to a certain degree, I guess, beneficial to create a sense of cohesion, but that cohesion comes at the cost of not critically analyzing many of these issues at hand because you don't want to upset the status quo. Uh, additionally, grad students aren't really indoctrinated into this because we are not given the opportunity or there isn't really a precedent into agifying us. As a result, 
and also because many grad students come here with family already settled or are just focused on their work, there isn't a heavy investment in campus culture and campus protesting and campus organizing the way uh, you would get at maybe other places. And ultimately, when you're trying to do something that is trying, trying to get at like reform or change, there's this wall of bureaucracy, this University is too big. It is too big. And you never know where you need to go. I feel this is very much like a Franz Kafka novel. You never know where you need to be in order to get something done. And especially for students of color coming in or who have never had experience with such kind of systems before, it's very difficult to navigate. So many of them just give up and just sit there like dead fish instead of getting involved with direct action, trying to resolve their issues and or try to navigate these channels and get burned out to the process because they're just faced with the unlimited amount of bureaucracy. And especially with the university reorganizing, that has just exacerbated that issue, making any kind of change through the channels that are already in place very, very difficult. Oh, I was just going to talk about kind of the, like the indo- indoctrination. It's like usually joked about the a and a cult. You know, it's kind of like the cult of like America. It's, I don't know, when I look at A&M, it's kind of like, this microcosm for the United States. A&M is like highly militaristic. Its major populations are white. There's just patriotism lingering all around campus and in College Station. And there's this like deep segregated divide between College Station and Bryan, which is like our sister city. And like the grad students are heavily left out of this. There's like this fish camp, which is kind of the traditions camp where you learn all about A&M. Grad students aren't even invited to that. It's only like a freshman undergraduate tradition. And also you have to pay to go to it. And there's like scholarships, but there's also like this class divide. Um, and then when you go to fish camp, it's overwhelmingly white. They have like aesthetics, like queer aesthetics. They wear fake tattoos and piercings and colorful shirts and stuff. But most of them are cis, white, straight. And it kind of sets a precedent for who you are at AM and like who is accepted. And then there's always... So many incidents, incidences of like racial harassment to faculty and students every single year outside of the systemic oppression of it's insane. Black students, black undergraduate students have the demographics have been around like 2.4% since 2006. And obviously it's been below that because they weren't allowed at AM until 1964, you know, Civil Rights Act. And in comparison to the other land-grant institutions, it's abysmally low, even though there's 13% of Black people in the state of Texas. It's, and it's not being addressed. And it's both because of AM's culture and because of funding from outside donors. It's, so, oh man, it just, it's fucked up. <laughs> you talked about this. <laughs> yeah, I want to add to that about the demographics. For example, looking at the current information on the state of Texas, the population's about... 12% Black or African American. And then if you compare that to Texas A&M, which recruits from all across the state of Texas, you have a population of about 6% that is Black or African American. We do have to consider, we're not talking about African Americans necessarily, who are descended from people who were historically enslaved within the United States, but may also include a lot of African and Caribbean immigrants or also their children within that 6% demographic. So the African-American population in the United States that has been historically disenfranchised systematically may actually be at a much lower percentage within the population of Texas A&M than the numbers would actually promise. 
However, if you compare that to the Asian population, there's almost double the number of Asian students here compared to the population of Asians within the state of Texas. So both Asians and whites are overrepresented, while black people, and especially African Americans, who uh, have been historically disenfranchised within the United States, are significantly low. And there's a historical reason for that, uh, especially with Prairie View University being set up as an HBCU, where most African Americans were channeled out to, instead of being given direct admission at Texas A&M. And there's a historical precedent for why they did that, if you read the history of the university. However, another interesting thing is that the campus is about 22% Hispanic or Latine, Latino, Latina, broadly speaking, and it could be recognized as a Hispanic-serving institute. However, interestingly enough, with the reorganization of the campus, they got rid of the Hispanic Studies Department, and which is just grossly ironic, considering how the university should be serving this demographic, but instead fails to do so systematically at multiple levels. And what this resulted in was the relocation of many Hispanic and Latino graduate students from offices in a space that is central on campus to its peripheries. Additionally, there are many resources that students of color need. And one thing I've noticed, especially you know, advocating for healthcare and other supporting services, is that many of these offices are far away from the center of campus or really difficult to reach through public transit. So if you're economically insecure and may not have a car or mode of transportation, getting to these places to get things like to the food bank or other aid or financial aid or something is going to be extremely, extremely difficult. And the architecture and the layout of the university is just designed to exacerbate that and make things much more difficult than it needs to be. That's one of the things we had, a, um, I guess, in our last season, Kiana Patterson, who talked about the greatness of DE and I as a principle. It's wonderful. Diversity, inclusion, equity. It's, it's fantastic. But what happens when these folks who are historically marginalized, they're in these spaces, but devoid of the resources, devoid of the networking opportunities, devoid of just the, the proximity to what the primary demographic at this school, when you look at the primary demographic being people who are white, being people who are straight, I would bet my check on being people who are Christian. Mm-hmm. What happens when they don't have those same resources? It becomes words. There's something that you said, Jothis, that that stuck with me. This was actually a quote that I saw of yours when you talked about the improvements that the university made in the 80s and 90s. But since then, what we're looking at is a regression. I can say that I'm a couple of years older than y'all, just a few. And I'm old enough. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm old enough to know what that progress looked like. I was an older teenager, early 20s, in the 90s, where there were just tremendous strides during the Clinton years, tremendous strides where we saw women, people of color. We saw just these cultural leaps for us being in rooms that were previously closed to us. Looking back at this 2022, where my kids are that age, um, my kids are 21 and 23, and what life looks like for them, and it's a world that they have less access than I did. I was not in a world where Roe was jeopardized. My daughter is. So when you look at that from your, through your 
activist lens, through your organizer lens, and we can be frank right now, we are looking at the midterms. That's just a little over a month away, right? What is the work in that respect for you as an individual organizer or for you as part of the part of your student organization? What is that like for you now seeing this regression? Where is your primary focus? So what are the things that we would be considering in terms of this regression that the campus is facing? I would say primarily that SDS as an organization is looking at community organizing and developing community connections, programming events and providing resources to the community, primarily by developing out those networks both on campus and off campus. An example of such an event could be something like organizing a skills workshop where an important skill that many people need, which unfortunately most people don't learn before coming to college, is like cooking. You can save a lot of money prepping your own food, cooking. It's much healthier than the kind of food that is offered on campus or quote-unquote is accessible on campus. And that providing skills like that or providing resources like that can really transform the lived experience of students and make it significantly easier for them to be able to go through their day-to-day lives, even if you're not able to explicitly alleviate some of these financial tensions that come from higher up through the bureaucracy of the university. Additionally, I want to acknowledge some of the work that has preceded me and many people in the organization have done, for example, fighting for renters' rights, especially with the number of slumlords that exploit housing insecurity in Bryan College Station. Advocating for that takes a lot of work. And doing something like that, and also working with mutual aid and providing resources for each other, food, travel, shelter, I feel like this is more of a way, easier way, and a more urgent way to respond to many of these issues, which are not coming down with institutional support. However, I'm sure there's many more strategies that could be taken, but I'll let Ellis speak on this from here on. Yeah, so you're talking about like the midterms coming up, right? At A&M, there isn't a lot of direct action going on. So what I mean by that is like we have quite a few like progressive organizations, but not a lot of them are focused on kind of challenging the systems we live in um, and fighting for a better future outside of these kind of structural systems like so like our municipalities like the local state and national governments and student governments and talking with admin in a very it's the word democratic that's like political i guess like rehearsed way in, in a way that isn't offending anybody we have a lot of like liberal political organizations that are only focusing on like voter registration, which is great. Getting voters to be registered are amazing. But there's like a lack of connection between this civic advocacy work and the issues that people are connected to that I've seen a lot that I think SDS is trying to address. So we have a few mutual aid programs and we are working to expand them. But what we are trying to address with them is that we need to distance ourselves from these institutions because... As we see, they are not really working to benefit marginalized people, queer people, people of color, um, undocumented people. There is legislation getting enacted every single day that hurts these people. And no matter what politician you put in office, you're always going to be, they're always going to be swayed by corporate interests. And corporate interests want to serve the majority of the people, which are people that colonize the UNES. So SDS is kind of trying to work 
on challenging these systems through mutual aid and through kind of more, I guess, direct action <laughs> methods like protests and disruptions and sit-ins like we've done with the No Monuments to White Supremacy campaign. So I think coming up on midterms, we're trying to capitalize on this sense of awareness of the world we live in and getting people to think more critically about the place we live in and the patterns we've seen over the election cycles and that getting around to the time where we need to act a bit more aggressively and desperately and yes, show up to the polls, but also show up to people's offices, call for action, disrupt meetings. There's so much work that needs to be done and like the world is collapsing and they're taking away our healthcare and there's just so much shit. And we're trying to kind of push people out of their comfort zone because very, very soon, a lot of people are going to be out of their comfort zone, whether they want to or not. So many people shy away from the political. And again, unless you're white straight cis with money, your life Mm -hmm. becomes political. Whether or not we can, how we can call ourselves a family becomes political. Whether or not we have children becomes the political. When we talk about reproductive justice, it's not necessarily just about abortion access, but more specifically becomes abortion access for people who are not rich. The Hyde Amendment um, has been in effect almost as long as Roe, and that's something that directly impacts how poor people are able to get abortion access. When we talk about, you, you mentioned how many organizations focus on voting, and I agree with you, voting is great, but when you think about it from the standpoint of democracy being a meal, Even if you view voting as the main, most important point, that's still just the turkey. You still need sides. (laughs) There are so many things that go along with this meal that comes with democracy. We, We have to look at what mutual aid looks like. We have to look at what organizers are doing, because when those people who are elected in office aren't doing their jobs, you need somebody to step in and say, hey. Okay, we still need this. Roe, we, we looked just this summer. Roe got shut down. Who stepped in and did the work immediately? Not the politicians. The organizers did. The organizers got mutual aid funds together. The organizers started protests and rallies and campaigns to figure out how we can still get this care for the people who need it. So when we're looking at it from that lens, the holistic lens and what you're building, because I know you have the, there are the, there's the direct solidarity fund. There's mm-hmm. the community library that you, that you have within your chapter. It's more than just the voting. I want to talk a little bit about something that with, vo- again, with voting and just suppression. One of the things that we, that impact your area specifically is the early voting station that was removed from your campus yes, and how it was not only removed from your campus, but it was done in the summer where people weren't around. Can you talk a little bit about for those who are going to, who do need this access, can you talk a little bit about what the organizing work around that A, will look like and B, what we can do, what I can do, what our producer, Angel, who's a Texan, can do. What can we mm-hmm. do to help? So, yeah, over the summer, uh, the commissioner's court voted without much input from the campus community, because a lot of us aren't here over the summer, to remove the MSC as an early voting location. And a lot of local progressive organizers got together to say, hey, no, we need this, because without it, you're disenfranchising thousands of people on campus who don't have 
regular access to transportation and you don't have time to take out of their busy schedules to go to city hall which is at least a two-hour round trip like on certain places on campus plus voting times it's abysmal and parking is awful it's a really horrible decision that really only works to disenfranchise the campus community especially when you look at what the demographics vote for so campus votes more blue and the zip code near city hall votes more red so all very telltale signs but after weeks of going to the commissioner's court and testifying you know and they were pulling us this way and that way cutting our times cutting us short not voting on things so they just didn't vote on replacing it in 2023 or 2022 after all that so it, they didn't vote to get it reinstated in 2022 and we're working on deciding, well, do we want to keep pushing the commissioner's court or do we want to work on trying to get people to City Hall? So I think what a lot of the organizers in the coalition are doing is um, trying to get transportation. So I think the Students for Beto folks are working on getting buses to bus people to and from the MSC and setting up signage around the MSC. And I think just kind of spreading awareness about this issue. I know it's been talked about on a lot of different media outlets and people on Twitter and stuff. I'm not really on Twitter, but people send me things. But just spreading the word because education is advocacy as well. And the more people that know about it, the more pressure you put on the commissioner's court, but also like consistent education and keeping up with this topic because in a year, it's not guaranteed that they're going to reinstate it. You know, they didn't vote on it. So we're going to have to go back <laughs> to get it back for 2023 because they didn't decide. They screwed us. So this fight's going to continue to get it back. And I'm just keeping up with what we're doing and see how you can help in the future, which would probably look like showing up to the courts next year. Yeah. The work continues. I want to, first of all, thank you both for joining, for joining this. Sometimes this conversation, especially, you know, I'm a, I'm a 40 something. So the conversation can get very Gen X-y <laughs> and, <laughs> and we also have to acknowledge that Gen X is as much as we love to think of ourselves as the cool kids. There are a lot of far right Gen X voters. There are a lot of people who fit into this ultra conservative culture. And for those of us who are not there, it takes reaching all generations ahead of us, behind us, all generations. This is not just a one person fight. It is going to take all of us to put some of our own bullshit on the side and lock arms because the right is a, using the, even when they don't agree on everything, they have found the ways that they can speak with one voice and use that voice. Another thing that Erin Lang, who is with Stay Without Us, she brought out an excellent point in that she said that the right also has the police and we cannot ignore that. So I want to thank you. We will absolutely be talking more about how we can help not only as individuals, how ResistPAC can help. Because again, there are so many things that are on the ballot. Our rights, our autonomy is on the ballot. But before we go, I know LSU said you're not a tweeter. So can you tell people, A, where they can find you after, sorry, Jothas, after they let us know, can you also let folks know where we can find you and how people who are in Texas can join your chapter of SDS? Yeah, well, I'm on Instagram. I don't post a lot of advocacy stuff on my personal account, but it's Ellis Howard. You can find me on Instagram. But follow our Students for Democratic Society Instagram page because that's where kind of all the updates are at. 
which is BCS underscore SDS. And if you want to join SDS, we have a link tree in our bio. You can sign up to join there. And we also have a website. Let me see what the website tag is. Tamu-SDS.square.site. So that's where mainly all of our organizing updates are at. And I just want to remind people that organizers are people. I say this all the time. So don't feel a way about not, you know, always talking about social justice. But if you do follow one of our guests through resist, but don't go there and act a fool. Be nice. <laughs> Be nice. We are all people. And it's not just, there's not just one facet of our personalities. So by all means, if you are sent here through me, behave. So the best way to find me is through Instagram. And my handle is at T-H-E-J-U-S-K-A-L at T-H-E-J-U-S-K-A-L. I also have a Twitter, but it's not really active. So if you reach out to me on Instagram, if you have any questions, that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. I do want to say before we sign off that for the No Monuments to White Supremacy campaign, which is working to build the fight against white supremacy at A&M by addressing our traditions and working to boost demographics of people of color at AM as well as spaces of inclusion and equity. We will have future actions this semester, and we will also have ways that people out of town can help out. So email zaps and then in-person actions that everybody who wants to get involved should get out to because every single person counts. Literally one more person is just that much more pressure on administration. So yeah, I think that's all that I want to plug right now. Alice, Jothis, thank you a million times over. I appreciate both of you so much for telling us not only what you face, but what your objectives are. And this is something that all of us can pitch in and help on. And we will, of course, be sharing to the extent that, to the extent possible, whatever we can do, we will be sharing to make sure that democracy is accessible for all. And that means helping organizations like yours. I want to thank everyone who's tuned in again this week for the ResistBot podcast. If you'd like to support ResistBot, you can go to resist.bot. There you can donate. You can start your own petition. You can text RESIST to 50409 and send a petition not only to Congress. It is great to message Congress. However, you have state legislators, you have governors, and so many of them have the power of what the rights that affect you every day are in their hands. So don't forget, you can text STATE to 50409 and engage your state legislators. I want to thank you again. If you'd like to learn more, again, you can go to resist.bot. If you'd like to follow me, I'm at the Gates of Mel on Twitter. The O is a zero. And until next time, see you then. The ResistBot Podcast is a production of ResistBot Action Fund, a social welfare nonprofit organization. ResistBot is funded by monthly donors like you. Support ResistBot by texting DONATE to 50409. You can learn more and see a complete guide to using the service, a real-time list of trending petitions, learn how to organize your own pressure campaigns, or launch your own voter pledge drives at www.resist.bot. 
Thanks so much for joining, and we'll see you next week.